I invite you to open your Bible, or one of the few Bibles, to the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. We've already sung this passage in our opening hymn of praise. Let us ask the Lord, whose spirit breathed out this word and preserved it for us in Scripture, to breathe upon us afresh that we might have ears to hear, hearts to believe, and souls to respond rightly in faith to the glorious gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Almighty and eternal God, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, and we rejoice in your goodness and the riches of your mercy and the free gift of your grace poured out upon us and your Son, whom you sent into the world so that we might live through him. And now in his name we ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit to give us spiritual wisdom and insight and understanding. Open our hearts, we pray, and speak, O Lord, that we might hear you by faith through your word in Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. The word of God, it is written. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, or as it could be translated, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And to his name be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. This passage from Isaiah chapter 9, and particularly verses uh, 6 and following, are among the most familiar passages uh, from the prophets that we read during the Advent and Christmas season. We, we often see it on Christmas cards, very appropriately so. Uh, we sing it, as we've done already. We, we hear it sung in the great work. Handel's Messiah. So we recognize this passage as a prophecy of Jesus' birth. But what else does it teach us? Now, 
One of the most important things to remember about biblical prophecy, and you've heard me say this before, you've heard me say it in Bible study, I say it again to make the point, that reading a prophecy is like looking through a telescope or a pair of binoculars. When you look through a telescope or binoculars, everything appears closer. Something 50 yards away looks very near. Something 150 yards away looks closer. And something 300 yards away, which might not have been visible to your naked eye, you can see pretty clearly. But here's the thing. You see it all at the same time. That object 50 yards away, 150 yards away, 300 yards away. Everything moves forward, and you see it all in one vision. That's how it is with prophecy. By the divine power of the Holy Spirit, the prophets saw things in the future. Some things were very near and close to them, occurring in their own lifetime or shortly thereafter. Other things were to occur further down the historical timeline, most often seen in the life and ministry of Jesus. And still other things were much further down the historical timeline, often all the way down to the last day, the coming of God's everlasting kingdom on earth with the coming of Jesus Christ in glory and power. But the prophets saw it all in one vision, and often communicated it in the same prophecy. Isaiah 9 is one of those prophecies. Isaiah saw events that were to occur in the relatively near future of his own day, namely the judgment that was to come upon the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah in the 8th century and in the 6th century before Christ. And this is where... The, the conclusion of chapter 8 provides the, the backdrop, if you will, or the running start into chapter 9 because the conclusion of chapter 8 speaks of this coming judgment. In fact, Isaiah uses words such as distress and darkness and gloom of anguish and thick darkness, which was about to fall on God's disobedient, Old Testament people, under God's discipline, under God's judgment, they were to be thrust into thick darkness, just as Isaiah prophesied, chapter 8, verse 22. And, yes, Samaria, the northern, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, was conquered by the Assyrians, and later Jerusalem in the south was devastated by the Babylonians. It's against that backdrop that then chapter 9 begins with a promise of redemption. Following the darkness and gloom of anguish, Isaiah says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. That's in northern Israel, was brought into contempt under the judgment of God at the hand of the Assyrians. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
So what's going on here? How is this prophecy of redemption fulfilled? When did the Lord make glorious, reveal his glory to Galilee of the Gentiles? The Gospel of Matthew answers that question very specifically for us. Matthew quotes this very passage from Isaiah 9 to show us that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy of Isaiah. Listen, from the Gospel of Matthew. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Leaving Nazareth, he, Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, the Sea of Galilee, in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Matthew chapter 4. So the prophecy of redemption, salvation in Isaiah 9 began to have its true fulfillment in the life and ministry of Jesus. More than 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah, by the power of the Holy Spirit, spoke the promise of the gospel. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, thick darkness, on them has light shined. Now that thick darkness of which Isaiah spoke, you see, was not merely the darkness of the Assyrian assault or the Babylonian exile. Those were real, but they were, even though real, symbolic of, a, of the true darkness, being under the judgment of God for our sins. The darkness is the darkness of sin upon all humanity. Everywhere, throughout all of history, it is the condition of humanity, fallen in sin in spiritual darkness. And the only remedy is the great light of salvation, which shines in and through Jesus Christ. So, for example, think about it. Just think about the language of the New Testament. It occurs over and over and over again. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul refers to the domain of darkness out of which believers in Christ are delivered. And the Apostle Peter declares that believers in Christ have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who then are the people who walked in darkness? Not only the people of ancient Israel and Judah before Christ, but the whole human race, Jew and Gentile, all of fallen humanity, which apart from Christ walks in darkness and dwells in the shadow of death. But because Christ has come, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And though prophesying about that which would happen in the future, you see, Isaiah, as do the prophets elsewhere, spoke in the past tense to emphasize the certainty, the God-ordained certainty, the predestined certainty 
of the salvation which would come through the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus himself claimed to be the fulfillment of this prophecy. Now, think about that. Here's a man who's speaking of himself, for himself, about himself, claimed to be the fulfillment of divine prophecy when he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There it is. And that language is no accident. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus also said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain, may not dwell, it's the same word, in darkness. Those who dwelt in the land of darkness. No. Whoever believes in me may not remain, may not dwell in darkness. So with these words from his own lips, Jesus declared himself to be the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus is that great light, the light of life, which shines in the darkness of this world. He was the light then. He is the light now. He will be the light forever. If we follow him, we will have the light of life. The light of life is, of course, life abundant, life everlasting, light filled with peace with God and the joy of knowing salvation, the light of life which will never be extinguished and which the darkness will never swallow. But if you're not following Jesus, you're walking in darkness. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus said. And I bet you know what that feels like. Have you ever... Have you ever been in absolute darkness, the kind of darkness in which you can't see your hand even right in front of your face. It, have you ever been in a situation like that? It, it's, it's, it's so terribly frightening. It, you know, it does something in your brain, even though you know you're perfectly safe. It's a, it's a weird kind of psychological experience. Just go shut yourself up in a dark closet and see how you like it, you know. I mean, because it triggers something way down deep. It's frightening. It's disorienting. Um, it gives you that instinctive feeling of the, the abyss of nothingness in the sense that you might just step, you know, you might just step off the edge of the world into a bottomless chasm. It's horrifying. Jesus Christ came into the world to rescue you from that reality in this life and in the life to come. Because there is a kingdom of darkness and there is a kingdom of light and the difference is Jesus Christ. Whoever follows me, Jesus said, shall not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. He fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy during his own earthly ministry, and still today, Jesus fulfills Isaiah's prophecy, still today, by giving the light of life to everyone who trusts him and follows him. His light will shine his light in your darkness if you will trust him and obey him and follow him. 
accordance with his word, in submission to him as your Lord. Now, in verses 3 through 5, Isaiah uses the imagery of a great harvest, which multiplies the nation and increases its joy. This, this is a prophecy of the, the, the great harvest, the ingathering of, of when, a, when a, the, the devastated nation is renewed and rebuilt up, but the vision here is for the ingathering of people from all over the world into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's being fulfilled now. As the gospel spreads throughout the world, people from every nation are being brought into the kingdom of Christ through faith. But it will be completely fulfilled when Christ comes again and the harvest is revealed with great rejoicing. And Jesus spoke of the harvest that is to come. when God will gather his people from north and south and east and west and bring them into his everlasting kingdom. Verse 4 uses the imagery of deliverance from and victory over a powerful enemy. The yoke, staff, rod of the oppressor is broken, setting the captives free as on the day of Midian. Well, the day of Midian was a day of military victory in Old Testament Israel's history, and it was a, a victory in which Israel was the decided underdog. There seemed no way in the world that... Israel could win that battle, but by God's mighty power, Israel did win that victory. Isaiah hearkens back to that and says that this is going to be um, a great victory like unto that day, even more so in which the rod of the oppressor will be broken and it ultimately portrays Christ's victory over the oppressive powers of sin and death and darkness. And Christ has overcome them all so that we might be set free from the slavery of sin and the curse of death and the the oppression of our guilt and condemnation before a just and holy God. The prophecy is being fulfilled now as men and women, boys and girls are liberated from the oppressor delivered from the dominion of the devil, the curse of sin, through the victory of Jesus Christ, coming to faith in Christ and realizing him as your victor over over all that would oppress you now and forever. And the prophecy will be perfectly fulfilled when Christ comes again and his people are finally fully Delivered from all evil, sin, death, and destruction, and war will be no more. And Christ's kingdom of peace will fill the heavens and the earth. And so Isaiah says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is the vision of the ultimate peace, the end of the war which the Messiah will bring to all the earth when he comes in glory. The armor and garments of war will be used as fuel for the fire, burned up as debris no longer needed. This is the peace and righteousness of Christ's kingdom in all its fullness. When all sin is eradicated, all evil is cast out, and all the nations of the earth are united in their praise of Christ the King. And then verse 6 prophesies, the one through whom all of this will take place. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The language used here is very, very instructive, and we need to pay attention to it very carefully. 
This is the prophecy of a human birth. To us, a child is born. Jesus, born of Mary, fully and truly human, one of us, one with us. Yet this prophesied child would be no ordinary child because no ordinary child would be called by the names which Isaiah announces in the following verses. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is no ordinary child. This child born of woman would also be a son given. To us, a son is given. Now, this poetic Hebrew parallelism, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Beautifully expresses the mystery of the two natures, human and divine, united perfectly in Jesus Christ. He was born a child with a sinless human nature, and he was and is the eternal son, the eternal son of God of divine nature who was given to us, given by the Father. Think of it this way. John 3.16 is really an echo of 9.6, Isaiah 9.6. God so loved the world that he gave, there it is, his only begotten Son. The Son whom God gave is the Son prophesied in 9.6, the child who was born. Likewise, Galatians 4.4, which we read earlier, says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son born of woman. Pay attention to this language. It's no accident. It's clear fulfillment of Isaiah 9.6. A child was born. The child that was born is the son who was sent. The son who was sent is the son who was given. In, this, in the birth of Jesus, we see this remarkable fulfillment of Isaiah 9.6. The Messiah of Israel is the Savior of the world, the Son of God given by the Father, the descendant of David born as a child. And throughout his life then, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 9. He proved himself to be the wonderful counselor even at the age of 12, confounding the teachers in the temple with his wisdom. Throughout his ministry, the people were amazed at his wisdom. And he still gives wisdom and counsel to those who seek him in faith. It is a wonderful thing that his counsel, his wonderful counsel, is spoken to us through the word of Scripture. He promises wisdom to those who look to him. He promises to guide those who follow him. Isaiah also names him Mighty God, or it could be translated Hero God, the God of power, the God who saves throughout his ministry. He proved to be the Mighty God, speaking to the winds and the waves, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is still the mighty God, able to save to the uttermost all that come to him in faith. 
He is the mighty God who redeems us from death, delivers us from the domain of darkness, guards our souls from the spiritual forces of darkness. Mighty God. He is given the title Everlasting Father, which in this passage does not refer to God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, but rather is a Hebrew manner of expressing eternality or immortality. Everlasting Father might be translated uh, Father of Eternity or more simply the Eternal One. As Jesus speaks of himself in the book of the Revelation, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's the point. It's a way of attributing to Jesus himself that which was attributed to God. As Moses said in Psalm 90, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And that means, again, that in this Savior, this child who was born, this son who was given, we have the very presence of the infinite and eternal God himself, who is without beginning and who is without end and who therefore has all authority over heaven and earth to whom we must entrust our lives for their eternal keeping to whom we owe all our obedience and to whom is due all our worship and praise every day. The last title is Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace because his kingdom is a kingdom of peace, shalom, well-being through and through. His kingdom is a kingdom of peace because his kingdom is a kingdom in which sin has been forgiven and will ultimately be eradicated. A kingdom in which sin has been atoned for and wiped away. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace because through faith in Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, peace with God through the blood of the cross. Peace with God through the blood of His cross. We receive that peace when we receive Him, the Prince of Peace. And since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then when the prophecy continues of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It is speaking of the kingdom of Christ, which was in fact inaugurated When Christ ascended to the right hand of God the Father, he is seated on David's throne now in the heavenly Jerusalem. Even now, the prophecy of his kingdom is being fulfilled. His kingdom, his government, his peace, however as yet imperfect and incomplete in this present fallen world, will continue to spread and to increase through the preaching of the gospel, the building up of his church, the worship of God in spirit and in truth, and though the world rages against him, he rules over all his enemies, and ultimately he will reveal their utter defeat. Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he will bring his purposes to perfect completion. And when that glorious day comes... When Christ comes again to bring his kingdom of peace in the glory of the new creation, then his peace will fill the earth. We're called, as we said last time, 
last Sunday. We're called to live in these in-between times as the people of his kingdom. His kingdom, which has come in our lives. His kingdom, which is increasing in the world. And his kingdom, which shall come in all its fullness, glory, and power. So the prophecy of Isaiah 9, so familiar to us during this season of the year, has been fulfilled in the life and ministry of Jesus, the child born of woman, the son given by the father. It has been fulfilled in the death of Jesus, who has made peace with God by the blood of his cross for us. It has been fulfilled in the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, who as the son of David, risen from the dead, now sits upon the throne in heaven. It is now being fulfilled by the ministry of Jesus Christ, the King, at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as He rules in the hearts of His redeemed people, as He increases His government of peace by sending forth His word of the gospel in the power of the Spirit to bring more and more people into His everlasting kingdom, looking forward to that great harvest. And finally, ultimately, this prophecy shall be fulfilled and fulfilled perfectly and completely when Christ comes again to bring his kingdom to its glorious consummation. When evil shall be banished forever, when war shall be no more, when death will be destroyed, and God will dwell with man forever in peace. O come, O come, Emmanuel, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your word which speaks your truth to us that we might not walk in darkness but in the light of life through faith in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, O Lord, that you will increase our faith Open our eyes to see more of your light and grant us the grace to follow faithfully our Lord and Savior, our King, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.